It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hi, welcome to the Football Writers Podcast. My name is Mike Calvin. I'm joined by Tony Evans of the Evening Standard and David Priest, the former Aberdeen and Sunderland goalkeeper. Last call for Fireman Sam. There's a grim logic to Everton calling 999 and asking Sam Allardyce to come to the rescue. They're desperate. Divided in the dressing room and the boardroom. Champions nine times, 64 years in the top flight, but they could easily go down. Wouldn't they, Tony? They could, you know, the, the People's Club, I think it's called that because they've tried every person in management. Um, <laughs> it, it's, they're in a real mess. Um, they, they entered the season with what they thought was a really good plan and they bought players, which, and to be fair, I thought they'd done reasonable business in the transfer window, but they never got themselves a striker to replace Lukaku and they, they've let that centre of defence in particular get old um, very, very quickly. There's no pace in the team. There's no idea. Uh, they're, they're completely disheartened by the looks of them, and they're going nowhere. And the problem is, they sack Cumin without without more than the vaguest idea of what they wanted. It's insanity. Mm. As, as I said, logical to call on Sam Allardyce, but he's got him over a barrel. Yeah, it'll cost him a lot of money. And you've got to ask, what is his motivation going to be? Because he's already said when he left Palace, "Oh, that's it. I'm not going back to club football." I spoke to him a little while back, and he seemed to be trying to tell us that he was he was enjoying life away from football. He's enjoying the time off, and I didn't believe a word of it. And he seemed to be thinking that uh, that an international manager's job would have been the, the sort of like the middle ground from where he could have had a bit of time off and a bit of a part time job. But um, I think you know something like Everton coming up with the money they have as well, the backing. I think it'd be uh, it, it's too much to entice him back. Mm. But as you say, Tony. There's absolutely no plan, is there? They talked to Andre Vias Boas, who's not doing very well in China. Surprise, surprise. They've talked to Paolo Fonseca, uh, Donetsk, presumably because he's Portuguese mm-hmm. and relatively promising and young. This is showing up. You know, all these great schemes and grandiose titles, they haven't got a clue. 
No, no, and and that, that's the problem. There's no real strategy in how they see the club going forward in the future. And it's not just Everton, it's a lot of places. And it's a classic reactive thing. They got Koeman in because they thought that, you know, there was a youngish foreign manager, you know, the Dutch influence, and, you know, this was the way forward. And now they've sacked him, and they, they're just casting around desperately. And, and eventually they're going back to the tried and tested British way of doing things with, with Allardyce, who... Actually, isn't a bad appointment for them in terms of he will keep them up, even this rabble, he'll, he'll, uh, he'll, he'll keep them up. But really, what, what does it say about these grandiose plans? I mean, you know, they're, they're talking about, um, you know, they're, they're still talking about moving into uh, the Bramley Moor Dock, this new stadium. Well, if the planning's like the football side of the planning, they'll end up at Skemmersdale ground sharing. <laughs> <laughs> but this is the one of the things that I've discovered sort of since I've uh, stopped playing. When you play, you, you, you worry about if you're happy at a club, uh, if you're playing in the side, if you're getting, if you're getting well, how much you're getting paid at the end of the month, or if you're getting paid at the end of the month. So you don't worry what, about what's going on above you. So you just trust that those people know what they're doing. Now that I've came away from that and you see behind the scenes, it's the one thing we, that's in English football uh, in general that we don't have that's, that's sort of Germany and the continental clubs have in Europe. There's no real alignment to, to the structure in the club. There's too many departments are sort of out of sync and kind of people looking after their own security in clubs rather than doing the best job and everyone working together. There's no sort of, there's no sort of uh, synchronicity there. You know, you're talking, looking at it from a player's point of view. I look at Michael Keane, really assured defender under Sean Dyche, was a great organiser. He looks completely lost. From a goalkeeping perspective, what will all this do to Jordan Pickford? That's a big worry for me. Um, and, and not just him as well, like Sir Calvert-Lewin, uh, Davies, all these young players, when they're coming into the side, you're relying on the experienced players to, to sort of make up for any deficiencies you've got in with the lack of experience. You need them to, to make you a solid team. They haven't got that. And the problem that David Unsworth's got at the moment is the same as what Koeman had. It's, he's got a lot of players who haven't been able to gel. There's no trust in each other. They've got no working relationship. And you can see that, that the whole back four in front of uh, Jordan Bickford, or, or back three, whatever player, they, uh, they're not playing together at all. And there's a, there's a picture on there on social media the of the back line. Yeah. And it, yeah. it, you know, it, it's like a rugby three-quarter line. Yeah, and, it, and it's just asking for somebody just to break through that line. And uh, I think it was, was Lytton Bins playing there, playing everyone on side it was just or was it uh, Kenny I can't remember yeah remember. perhaps yeah and it was it, it, it just it screamed for somebody just to break the lines and easily get through their back four do you know the signs were there actually this time last year because you know uh, Tom Davis is a classic example you know um, he, he, he come through in the spring and everyone was saying ah oh, this is a success for the, the youth system basically they were trying to offload him on loan or just offload him this time last year and then suddenly it was like oh yeah you know this is th this is our plan work and, and actually there was no plan and as I say it's not it's not unusual, it's not just Everton, so it's unfair to single them out that way, but when you're at the bottom of the table, you're going to be singled out. Let's look at the bigger picture then, Tony. Are we seeing the start of a new transfer market, a transfer market for managers? Well, yeah, I mean, they're, they're becoming increasingly... Um, it, it seems to be... A, well, a sh well, it's not actually... I'm gonna, when I say it, it, it's getting smaller and smaller, the market for, for people that 
uh, clubs want to employ. It's always been that way, you know. So to Ron Atkinson did the rounds of most clubs in the old mm. first division, you know, mm. and the Premier League. So uh, you know, Sam's like the new big Ron in that that sense. But there's there's people with tried and tested uh, backgrounds who, who you know you can rely on to get you out of these things. And yeah, they are uh, they are probably more valuable than players mm. at this point. You know, for a club facing relegation, yet you want the best firefighter out there, and Allardyce is. And it is a fashion, fashion business, isn't it, Dave? You know, if you look at Marco Silva as a good example, comes in from Hull, he's derided, doesn't save them, but now he's the best thing since life's bread. He has, to be fair, done fantastically well at Watford, but we're talking about a sample size of, what, 15 matches? Now Everton want him as the new saviour. Where can we get any sort of structure when it's basically all done on a whim and a prayer? Well, well you, you can't do that. But like we're saying about the, the, the short-termism of uh, just having six-month contracts, you've seen a lot of managers doing that now. Mm. And you, there are a lot of managers who fit that type. You know, there was the, the old thing about, you know, if West Brom... Uh, didn't have Pulis as manager, that's the type of person they'd want to keep them up. And I think it's uh, it's difficult it's, with clubs, unless they have a very clear idea of where they want to go and how they want to do it. And like we, we talk about the structure of the club and the alignment, unless they have that, they'll just keep jumping from one manager to another and it'll be all a bit of a jigsaw and, uh, and misplaced pieces. Where I think if they have that clear idea and that clear identity, then they can go after the right managers. But at the moment, it is, they're looking as far as the end of the season and survival. Talking of six-month contracts, Tony, will David Moyes see out his six-month contract at West Ham? Well, I think an awful lot depends on, um, on the next four games. Uh, I think it's important that they beat Everton. Yeah. Because perfectly timed that. Well, you know, that's a, that's a juicy uh, folly, isn't it? You hit them for four, um, uh, but after that, they've got Man City away, and they've got uh, Chelsea and Arsenal at home. It, conceivably, they could take no points from those three games. So if they if they don't pick up points against Everton, then he's in real big trouble. I think get three against Everton, and it gives them time. You, you can take positives from the the, the games against the the, the three. Uh, team from the top six and then move on to, to afterwards but um, but yeah if it all goes horribly wrong in the next four games you could see them twisting again come January uh, which I mean I, I thought West Ham I, I saw them um, last week against Leicester and there were small signs of uh, organisation and progression they, they had a, a they had more energy about them than they had under billage but um they were also wide open they don't press the ball they they lay back in the midfield and they let people run with with, with it um and that's going to be very very dangerous and he, 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 at least he's a month ahead of of, of Allardyce. i mean the reality is that billage was sacked two weeks after um, Koeman, but West Ham went and got themselves a, a manager, got him in, said do this at the end of the season. And I have to say, uh, any plan is better than no plan, and at least West Ham showed they had some sort of plan. Mm. Yeah, when we think of David Moyes, okay, there, there's a temptation to think about Manchester United and the chance that got away, but his body of work at Everton, can you assess that, David, and can he actually recreate that model? in a much more uncertain world. I think we touched on it before. I think a lot of this has to do with David Moyes himself. 
And as much as West Ham need him to, to come through and be the manager that's going to save them, he needs West Ham to be the club that saves him because this is very much a last chance saloon. And the way that Everton were built was kind of on his personality. The, uh, he, he was sort of, he was very uh, abrupt in, in interviews. He's very forthright. You, you thought that he knew, he knew what he was doing and he, and he trusted what he was doing. You don't get that at all now. In the interview, he looks very unsure, looks very uh, conscious of every word that he says. And I'm probably alone being from Sunderland and thinking this, but I, I did have a little bit of sympathy for him. And I want them to come out fighting uh, in, the, in the last couple of weeks. I want them to be sort of defiant uh, against all the criticism, even against his own fans, and just believe in himself. Because what if he doesn't believe in himself and doesn't come over as if he believes in himself, it's very difficult for his players to buy into that as well. Yeah. What's the mood like, Tony? As you said, you were at the London Stadium, or the Olympic Stadium, as I prefer to call it, mm -hmm. um, against Leicester. Were the fans on his side? Because the fans have been alienated by the owners. I don't think they were quite on his side. I think they were um, they're desperate for any, any forward momentum. When they saw that coming, they, they got very excited. And there was, there was a, in the second half there, there was a real atmosphere. And it was like, whoa, in this stadium. And, you know, West Ham fans can, can really, you know, lift the, lift the roof when they start. But I think the, the, the jury, from the, the sense I got from talking to fans before and after, is they're not convinced. Uh, they're willing to give them a chance because, well, they're stuck with them. And, um, and they're, they're hoping, beyond hope, he can keep them up because they all recognise what it would be like there if they did go down. They, um, they, you know, that, that, that stadium, half empty. The one thing I will say for West Ham is they've got, they've got strikers. They might all be injury prone, they might be inconsistent, and they might be infuriating. But they've got four strikers and they can, they can mix and match. You look at a club like Everton and you don't see where the goals are coming from. Mm. You know, we've talked about David Moyes going back to his old club, Paul Clements going back to Chelsea one of his former clubs. Um, there's a young manager that probably British football needs to succeed, but he's under huge pressure at Swansea now. Is he looking vulnerable to you? Well, of course he is. I mean, but ordinarily you would say going, going away to Chelsea and losing to Chelsea shouldn't cost you a job. In the, in the big scheme of things. But with Tony, we've seen with Tony Pulis, a 4-0 defeat at home to Chelsea, ended in his uh, second. Mm. But I think uh, Saturday's game, I think, is at uh, Stoke. Stoke on Saturday. That's going to be the real big one. Mm. And not just for him, for Mark Hughes as well. Yeah. Do you, th do you think, um, you look at Clement, he's got a cosmopolitan background in many ways. You know, school teacher, worked at grassroots, coached under Carlo Ancelotti made a special point of watching Mourinho work. So he's got all the schooling, but he's at a club which is almost at odds with itself. Well, that, that's, that's the other problem. And I think most people just look at managers and they look at the results, and you're going to do that in a res results-based business. But the reality is, you pick the wrong club, you go into the wrong club, and you're doomed to failure. And at Swansea, things have been getting worse for for the best part of half a decade. And the, the club's lost uh, any sense of where it was going. Uh, you have different forces behind the scenes pulling in different directions. The recruitment has gone from being quite good to absolutely abysmal. And, uh, you know, you, so you've got to manage and you throw them into this situation. And you, suddenly you're, you're in, a, in that sort of corner that 
a combination of Steen and Shankly couldn't get out of. <laughs> you know, and, and you, so it's difficult really to judge because everything that you look at and you see, you go, this should be a manager who's making a success. And possibly if he was to have a, a club, I don't know, somewhere, if he would have chosen a club like perhaps Southampton, although there, there is problems behind the scenes there these days. Mm. But, you know, if he went to a club like, I don't know, Liverpool, he might have been in a better situation, but it doesn't happen like that. I'll, I'll put my hands up. I thought Renato Sanchez would be a shoo-in to do well. Yeah. Now, he's been all over the place, and Clements had to protect him and defend him. Um, when you're in that situation as a young manager, you need those sort of marquee signings to, to pay off, don't you? Yeah, and, and Wilfred Boney as well is a, is a great example. Yeah. It just just hasn't happened for me as, as well there. But I think going back to, to Paul Clement and the education he's had and the influence of someone like Ancelotti. Now, all Ancelotti, Conte, all the Italian managers, they're sort of, uh, the, the way they're schooled in, in Italy, in the uh, in coaching sense, they've become very flexible. They're not just rigid in what they do. They, they, they adapt to different situations like you showed last year with a change in formation, Conti, sorry. But um, sometimes when you're in a situation like Paul Clement is, you need um, a clear way of getting out of it. And if you're too flexible, it might need, mean you're changing too much. You're looking at things, you, nothing's really going right. So you're looking to change things all the time. You don't get any sort of um, sort of fluid direction. You don't get any sort of um, a, a clear direction. You overthink it. Does. Yeah, well, that's, that's precisely it. And in the case of someone like Everton, it's the, the, Swansea's problem is that they can't score. Uh, Everton's problems is that they're, they're conceding a lot of goals. So it's, it's two different uh, sort of problems they've got there. But... They have to. Uh, they, they both have to simplify their their games, because if you overthink it and you try to overcomplicate things, you put in players who are already under pressure anyway, and you're giving them too much to think about. Now this is where Big Sam comes in. Everton. The first thing he'll do, it will simplify the way they play and make sure that they don't have too much to think about, and that back four will will stop worrying about a million things, and they just have to concentrate on three or four things. Mm. They can't play. So you can't play Tammy Abraham at Stamford Bridge because of mm. you know, the, the loan deal. Is that yet another example of how the loan system is open to be exploited? Yeah, without a doubt. I think that's um, the biggest flaw in it. Um, I, I think if you're going to let a player go out on loan, I can see all the advantages. I can see that um, it helps in the development. But, you know, they've got to play in every game that they can. And I just think it's uh, that's one of those loopholes that they should close very quickly. Mm. With Chelsea, what do you? What's your assessment of them at the moment? It, it seems that there are very subtle changes going on, especially in defence. You know, Andreas Christensen's really beginning to bed in now, um, but there's always that undercurrent of uh, unease, if you like. You know, the Courtois contract is now the the, the latest thing that is vexing Conte. It's not going to be plain sailing, there, is it? It's not, and in Courtois' case, um, you know, if if all reports are right and he's holding out for uh, sort of two hundred thousand pound a week, then I say all, all the best to him, really, because he's one of the best goalkeepers in the world. Uh, his wages should reflect that the same as outfield players do. So I think that's, but that shouldn't be an issue. It shouldn't be brought in. It, it shouldn't. It's, it's not. It's not affecting his performances. Where is he in your top five? Um, he's definitely top three. Uh, especially for consistency, uh, brilliant taking crosses, and he's uh, and, and the fact that he's, he's playing. It, 
it's always a great bonus if you're playing in a team that's very good defensively and set up defensively. It's a big help. You know what I mean? We, for all the plaudits, I mean, I love Buffon. For all the plaudits he gets, he's, he's played in on national level and, and on a, a, a home level in Serie A. He's played some of the best defences that Europe's mm. seen. So and, and that goes with Courtois as well. So it, that's a so that's that's a big part of his game as well. But he's mm. uh, he's definitely worth uh, the money he's holding out for. So for the record, who are the other two in the top three? I'd say De Gea. And um, I've put myself in a bit of position now because I've missed out Eduardo now, yeah. But it's uh, Eduardo's probably still got a little bit more to prove. But Larissa and De Gea, but top two, definitely. Good. On Saturday, Rafa's going back to Chelsea. Yes. Um, he really wound up the Chelsea fans when he was Chelsea manager. It was wonderful to watch. Um, but he's a bit wound up himself, isn't he? You know, if you saw that press conference he did yesterday, basically calling out the ownership saying yeah. we are where we are because we've done what we've done mm. well i mean he's very apprehensive he's aware that this squad of players is probably not good enough to stay in the premier league and you wonder without him would they be would they have even a chance but he's 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 concerned this this is a group that could go on the slide and he knows that it'll do his reputation no good to get relegated. And most of all, he doesn't he doesn't want to fight relegation. He wants to look for trophies. He, when he went to Newcastle, he imagined himself bringing the first trophy to, to you know to St James's Park. And you know, well, I mean, fifteen forty was the last one, wasn't it? <laughs> um, but you know, so he wants to win, and he and he he believes he can win with not, not even the best players, but just reasonable Premier League players. And uh, he was extremely disappointed in the summer because of the way the transfer business was conducted. And yeah, I think, um, I think there's two reasons that he's still there. One is um, there is the possibility of a change of ownership, which, which he, he obviously would appreciate. And secondly, somehow he signed a daft contract. That means he has to pay uh, Newcastle five million or more if he leaves. <laughs> And he was doing them a favour. So I, I, I don't know who let that get into his contract, but uh, I, I, I can imagine them. They, they, they had a rather unpleasant conversation afterwards. <laughs> you know, obviously, you know, you're in tune with that area, David. What's, he's still got a lot of loyalty from the fans, hasn't mm. he? Oh, a hell of a lot, yeah. I mean, I think the, a lot of Newcastle fans are probably still shocked that he's, uh, that he's their manager. I think... Uh, uh, a big part of all this, of course, is the the impending uh, takeover as well. You know, I think that just everyone just up there just hopes that if he's given the money, he's given the the the, the backing by the the new owners who come in, that uh, they can do something special, and he can do because this isn't a top half of the Premier League side that he's got. But at the same time, the uh, the game against Watford. That's not a Rafa Benitez size that gets tore up and so as easily as it did uh, last week either. And they're losing against teams like Watford, yeah. and that's the problem. Mm -hmm. Let's look at Arsenal. You've got Huddersfield in midweek. Mm. Um, will they get into the top four at the expense of Tottenham? I don't think so. I mean, I think um, I, I think there is a feeling of well-being at Arsenal that is completely artificial, <laughs> um, and uh, you know it, it generally happens. They go on a run of three or four results, and every, everyone's like, "Oh yeah, this is brilliant," and then it all falls apart again. It's toxic. I think um, the um, 
the, the, the victory over Tottenham was a huge thing for them, but they, they'll get caught out. Uh, it's you know, Ezel had the um, a brilliant game against Tottenham, but why why isn't he imposing himself on games every week? And that's what they need. And the the, the bitter reality for Arsenal fans is the two biggest uh, players are on the way as soon as they can possibly get out of North London. Mm. Uh, the only reason Ezel will stay is because no one else will have him. Well, if you listen to the you know to his. Uh, apologists, Barcelona and Man United are queuing up. And also, Wenger has said this morning that they won't be sold in January, neither of them. Unless, unless something remarkable happens. Such as? Oh, well, who knows? Someone puts in an offer. <laughs> no, I mean, classic Wenger. When he, um, he says something and leaves you more confused at the end of it. So you go, OK, uh, definitively, they won't be sold. No, they won't be sold. Unless something strange happens. OK. Well, well, I'll buy that. <laughs> so it seems that they're really ready for Manchester United on Saturday then, does it, Dave? <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, you know, talk about their situation. We're seeing everything's going, going all right now. They're very strong at home this season. They seem to be going, going along quite nicely now. But like you said, January's going to be massive for them. And whether he says they're going or not, there's still going to be all the chatter. There's still going to be all the questions asked. You can still see him exploding halfway through January after being asked the question for the 200th time. So it's still all going to be there. And until it's resolved, it'll always be there. Mm. Mm. And what will be interesting is how United approach the game. I think um, it wouldn't surprise me if they set their template up for the next month, because they've got City as well, in, um, in approaching this match in an extremely physical manner. Yeah. And do you think that, you know, we, we, we were almost brought up on that rivalry between Mourinho and Wenger, which has eased, probably because Wenger, in his eyes, doesn't present any threat anymore. Mm. Um, how do you think they'll approach it? Do managers, David, take games as personally as we in the media tend to think they do? Yeah, simply because, I mean, with some managers, the only time they see each other is in the dugout. Not all managers go in for a glass of wine after um, after the game. Sometimes they do it, and it's just sort of it's just a show of face, and there's, there's no sort of mm. there's no interaction of uh, a sort of friendliness, you know. So, regardless of what people see in front of each other, you know, there's always that that's for that ninety minutes. That's when you see the real characters between each other, regardless of what goes on behind the scenes. So I think that's. There is a, I mean, there is, there is a dislike there. You can see that, but it, it, a lot of it is. Uh, I think it's something like Mourinho. It's, it's for themselves really, because he needs that to, to feed him rather than for anybody else's benefit. I think we need to remember that uh, Mourinho really crossed the line with Wenger, with the Voyeur stuff. Mm. You know, it's, um, and Wenger hasn't forgiven them for that. So there, there will always be an element, a needle in there. And Mourinho might laugh it off and say, oh, no, it's no big deal. And he might have moved on to new enemies, but it sits and festers with Wenger. Mm. With Mourinho, he's basically you know, performing to type this week. He's defending Lukaku, say he's got a fantastic mentality. Shame his goals have dried up. Mm. That surprise you? No, but it surprised me a little bit that his goals have dried up. But then when you see the way United have played with such negativity and timidity in, in games that they should be winning, then, then I'm not surprised. And it, it comes down to, to me, to Mourinho's fault rather than Lukaku's. Although at times his body language and one of the criticisms of Everton is that he didn't get involved unless he was scoring. And, uh, and he's that sort of player. 
But, you know, Mourinho's got to get the ball forward more. I mean, Pogba's back and that'll make a difference to them. But um, uh, it, it, it's classic Mourinho. He's, he always, unless there's an air of chaos and unless he's either fighting on behalf of someone or with someone, he's kind of bored. Mm. One matter. This might be quite close to your heart, David. He has said that he would like to play on at Manchester United until he's 40. Is that possible these days? Physically it is, yeah, it is. But I think once you start getting to, to mid-30s, it's it, you do often find that, that you, you become a little bit more sensible, really. You know, the, the fact that when some players, as they come into the sort of late 20s, early 30s, it's because you... you you're not chasing those sort of lost lost cases down. You're not chasing balls down. You you you're kind of uh, conserving yourself, and it, it, you you play within yourself a little bit more. You think you're being cleverer, when really it's it's that little bit that extra five percent that that keeps you at the top and keeps you performing to that level all the time. And I think with something like one matter, yeah, it might be because his game hasn't been about that. It's it's it is a bit, bit more cerebral way he's looking for. It's never been about pace, has it? Well, well, exactly, yeah. And so more than anything, I mean, we, we, we've mentioned David Moyes a couple of times about his motivation uh, to be a manager and losing that a little bit. It, that's the same with players. So physically now, players are in better shape and, and better equipped to to, to keep going. Mm. Well, the, the only thing that surprises me is that Mata's still at United under Mourinho because mm. he's not a sort of player. Uh, he, he, he doesn't do the, the, the track and back, he doesn't do the covering. And too many of his balls go sideways, you know. It's, uh, Mourinho likes to play that quick game, get the ball forward quick. Mata, one touch, two touch, goes sideways. Mm. All very nice, but not a Mourinho player. But Danny Rose is a Mourinho player. Oh, without a doubt, and um, there's a couple of people at Tottenham who are Mourinho players. You know, Eric Dyer as well. He, he, he fancies him, and I think he's a, at, at the first opportunity. He'd take both. Yeah, you expect any of that to happen? Let's also look at the other side of it. Luke Shaw. You've been around players who've been out of the team and basically been put on the bomb squad. Yeah. He's in that position. Do you just have to get out? I think so. I think you know it goes on so long that you, un unless unless there's something that, w that we're not seeing that, that Mourinho sees. Now, there's one thing I, in situations like this, you hesitate uh, to criticise because we we don't see them in training every day, mm. you know. And and sometimes you can you look at someone like Luke Shaw and you think, well, he he doesn't look in the best of uh, form, sort of fitness-wise, in, in in his body shape. He doesn't look like he's in peak physical condition. So you, you, so then when it comes to the criticisms and being left out the side, you probably think, well, yeah, that's probably why. But at the same time, you've got to question his mentality as well. He's had these injuries. That's not going to help. And it, if you're not getting sort of into your stride and getting games under your belt, then you know, it's sort of like two steps forward, one step back, and you, you, you never get any rhythm going. Mm. But you do have to question him. And I think he, he's probably right. Having said that, Manchester United is a very... It's a hard, difficult club to walk away from. I know a lot of players who went there and they've settled for being the bench because it's Manchester United. It, it's the wrong club for him to go to. When he was at Southampton, they used to, I mean, they really give him care and attention. That, for example, the monitor of social media, if he tweeted or something, or went on Facebook, after midnight, he'd be hauled into the office. They watched where he ate. And it wasn't that he was um, a, a troubled kid or disruptive. It's just, you know, he, he, he didn't realise. He needed his body 
to become a top footballer. So, you know, it's a, I mean, they did things like bans him from using sort of half a bottle of tomato sauce on his meals and things like that. So they, they really nursed him along. And then he goes to Man United. And Man United's a big club, you know, sort of, and there's bigger players than he's going to be. And, and he kind of got lost in the mix. No one pays any care and attention to him. And he wasn't ready to pay the care and attention to himself. And you wonder whether he'll ever come through at this stage. It's funny you're saying about uh, Danny Rose, whether he's a Manchester United player uh, at all. But the moment he spoke out and did that, uh, did the interview, um, uh, expressed how unhappy he was, I think that's the moment for me he stopped being a Spurs player. Because mm. I think it, in, in the environment that's. The only, the only uh, word I can use to describe it is, I don't like it, but it's a project. They've got a project there, they've got a way of doing things. And if one person steps out of line like that, it sends everything out of, uh, out of harmony. And I think Pochettino knows that as well. And once, and once that happens, I think he's sort of like a bit of an outsider. Yeah, there's no bigger project, Tony, than Pep Guardiola's project at Manchester City. Mm. You know, a lot of talk about, are they going to be the best ever, which we might be able to go on to. Just want to concentrate on one individual. I know you've written about him, mm. Raheem Sterling. He seems to be almost a prototypical Pep project for Pep. Oh, without a doubt. And he's, um, it's worked quite well because Sterling's willing to learn. He's always been willing to learn. You know, all, all through his development, he's reached plateaus where you think, oh, can he move on to the next step? And he's found a way of doing it. You know, he's added a little move to his game. You know, he's realised that you can't just blow past people. So he's, you know, sort of, he's, he's, and what Guardiola's has done is worked with him on the training grounds and to get his body shape into a better position so that when the ball comes to him, instead of, so it's hitting them with his back. I looked at that. I looked at that clip, and I thought that was just basics. basics yeah. It is basics, but you know, a lot of players, and you've actually played. So tell me if I'm wrong. A lot of players trust the talent, trust the talent, and don't think. They just go. It, it is just basics. But um, the, the the real top class players do it naturally, or or, or think about it. But a lot, lots of them just take to the pitch, and you know. And they're really good at this, you know, it's, it's brilliant. So uh, the, the thing is, what they do at City, what, uh, they, they, they sort of look at your stats after every game and give them, give them to you and you see the areas where you're, um, where you're successful or not. And Sterling's paid a lot of attention to that as well. And he's worked on the areas where he's not, um, he's not, not at his sort of peak. And so this, this urge to develop, I mean, a lot of players would take that sort of stuff and oh, yeah, 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 fine. But Sterling does it, and Guardiola loves that about him. Mm. I think players with extreme pace are like gold. And what I found with a lot of play players that are, who are basically sprinters who play football, it's hard work going the other way. When you're doing those mm. runs that, that hurt teams and going in behind, it's hard work if you're doing a lot of them in the game. Now, so what you often find is a lot of them come short of feet because that's an easier game to play. Mm. So they come, they, they, they get the ball in, they play it back and then they trot off somewhere else because they, they know that if they keep going all the time, like, like I said, mm. like what Guardiola worked on, popping the ball off and then going in behind, mm. you might get it all the time. You might get it once or twice every 10 times, but it's, it's those one or, one or two times that are going to hurt teams, but it's hard work. And when you think of sprinters, because, because of the nature of their game, you do a lot of those runs and you tire easily. So it's just been having the willingness to do that. Well, there's an extra component with City as well in the sprints, because what Guardiola wants is front players to close down 
the uh, opposition defenders and they have to do a lot of sprinting there as well and that if the, if they can win the ball high up it allows that defense to play a very very high line squeeze the play into the area where city won it and and give the the opposition less chance to get behind the defense but that re requires an awful lot of work and in particular Sterling, Sané and Jesus are, the, 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 are very very good at that and that's another thing that that Guardiola's work with them on the training grounds. There are other players in the in the squad. Uh, Aguero, who is the best goal scorer in the league, who perhaps doesn't quite <laughs> believe in chasing down people as much as the others. And he's uh, there's a little bit of a cloud over him at City, but uh, because of that, um, I mean, me, I just put him on the pitch to score. Yeah, yeah. Collectively, how good can City be? If you look at the stats at the moment, they're four points better off than Arsenal's Invincibles at this stage of the season. They're five points better off than the Chelsea team, which had that record 95-point season. Are they going to go through unbeaten? How good can they be? Of course they can do, you know, especially to continue the way they're playing now. They're dealing with some injuries. Further forward, if they get if they lose players further forward at the pitch, they have that many options. It's it's not going to be a massive blow to them. Um, I think it was a, a great test for them on Sunday against Huddersfield. As uh, as boring as some people might think it is, uh, the way the Huddersfield set up, de defending basically ten yards from the half, they were on halfway line. Uh, it might seem like it was only a matter of time, but you know, but for the the, the penalty decision, um, they, they they might have been able to hold on to it. But it was a, a brilliant test for them, even though it was like a training session, overload training session. But what it did, it proved to me that they're not just a clever passing side. Mm. They're not just uh, relying on uh, Kevin De Bruyne to to play these passes in behind play, uh, teams and, and and use a space in behind them. What they've got, they've got absolutely brilliant ball carriers the likes mm. of David Silva who can take a player out of, out of the game with one movement while he's carrying the ball Sane as well uh, and it, it gives them an overload and a numerical advantage in, in, in the important parts of the pitch in, in the next month they've got uh, the, within six days they've got United and um, and then Tottenham and that'll be the big test for them uh, I still think that there is for all the brilliance, there is a an area in the central centre of the field where often there's only Fernandinho in the middle. If you can get the ball there, then you, you've got a chance to go forward and get behind that defence. And the other thing is, why do people persist in trying to play the ball out the up from the back? against City mm. when they, they squeeze you so well. If ever there was a case for the keeper to punt it long, you know, compete for the first ball, win the second ball, get into that defence, it's against City. So I don't think they'll go through the season unbeaten. But they're a good side. Uh, I think they'll go, they'll, they'll win the league. They will go fairly deep into the Champions League, but they'll meet people who are more sophisticated and have a better structure across the field. What they've got now, though, they've, they've got a fear. Everyone comes at them and fears them, and that left them. It started last season, people had a fear about uh, Pep's side, they didn't know sort of how he was going to do in English football, but they, they feared him. And then when, uh, you know, when they had the incident with uh, Bravo, when he came at the side, made a mistake, they sort of think we can get, on, get at him here, but they've got a bit of a weakness. They haven't seen that this season. They haven't seen that there's no weakness, so people are still fearful going past that 10-game point in the season. And I, and I think that's, that's what they've got against people. But... Look at uh, Pep Guardiola, his reaction after that game. He will not celebrate a, a result as much as he did all season mm. because you could see how much he knew they had to work for it. Yeah. yeah. Well, only team to take points off City this season? Everton.
Yeah, go figure. <laughs> um, some intelligent questions now uh, from the listeners or the viewers. Uh, Ken Sanderson uh, talks about Watford. Watford, by the way, there's a clash of hipster managers on Saturday, um, Silver and Pochettino. Uh, Richarlison, one of the signings of the season? Yeah, he's been fantastic. Um, I, I mean, I didn't see it coming. It's, uh, he's, he's got a brilliant touch. His awareness is superb, his movements. And, and yeah, he, he really stands out in that team. And um, I think we, we kind of... Um, we're getting a little bit overexcited about Watford. They've done really well. I mean, we've all we've all airbrushed that spanking from City out of the season, and uh, and I think um, Silver again. We're, we're, we're probably on on as you say on such a small sample. We're probably elevating them too far. But uh, but now they've been very good to watch and. Um, and Richie Elson has been he's been a joy, and I'm I'm sure. The way bigger clubs are circling around Silver, they'll they'll be circling around him as well. Yeah, he'll be going. He'll be gone in January, if not in the summer. I'd have thought. Yeah, yeah. Um, David Joe on the City theme. Is Leroy Sane the most improved young player in the Premier League this season? Whether well, I don't think he's most improved. I mean, he's still impressive last year. He's just maturing, you know. And he's he's playing a side now that's um, that they're having no wobbles. Everyone's supremely confident, um, and like I said about his, his, his ball carrying skills, he's just he's so f fleet of foot. You know, he's so it's almost like a, he reminds me when he's run with the ball. It's a little bit like Terry Henry or, or Nicholas Anelka, even. It's, it's like the feet don't touch the floor. Like you know, it's uh, that sort of floaty. Yeah, exactly. And, and he, he takes players out of the game, and he gets in those positions now. I mean, he's what six goals, six assists this season. He's uh, he'll, he'll double that easily. Mm. Charlie Burgess asks, Sean Dyche, he says that the big clubs get the big decisions. Is he right? Well, yeah, to a certain extent, but I mean, often there's, there's a simple reason for it. You know, they spend a lot of time camped out in the opposition area. You know, you wonder why traditionally Liverpool, when they were at the peak or Manchester United, got loads of penalties because they're in the opposition area and the opposition weren't in their area. So, do they get the big decisions? Yeah, normally they, they deserve them, but it's not. I don't think there's a referee who goes into the game going out, you know, with the, at the back of his mind, the big clubs carry. I think it's just because generally they get into the positions where the decisions that go their way are going to be huge ones, and um, and I think that the, the the decisions that the so-called small clubs has, um, uh, get decisions in the middle of the park and not in the opposition mm. area, which you don't notice as much. Yeah. Did you have a black book of referees who you knew you wouldn't get a decision against? <sighs> Not tell us now. You're no, 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 not really. I, mean, I it was quite clever. Like uh, people like Hugh Dallas, who was a great referee. I always thought he was a great referee. It, they're the ones who sort of used a little bit of common sense. Like there'd be times when there'd be a, the lines would give a corner. And it was clear it wasn't a corner. And then when when the cross came in from the uh, from the resultant corner, he just blew up for a free kick in the middle. Mm. There wasn't a free kick in the middle, but he, he just acknowledged it wasn't a, uh, it wasn't a corner in the first place. Mm. So it it posed more. You, you probably more looked at the, the referees that that that's you, you favoured or that you, you knew you could trust a little bit more rather than sort of targeting referees that, that you didn't think you were going to think. But you're right about that. It's probably more down to volume of decisions mm. that, or having to make those decisions. I mean, even Raheem Sterling, before he got the penalty, there was a penalty shout just before that, couple yeah. before that, or a minute before. So, you know... By law of averages, you know, if you're going to get any dicey decisions, if you on the second, if you don't get the first one, you're going to get the second or third one. Yeah, you know, City will get 
three or four, uh, you know, perhaps penalty decisions over two games against Huddersfield. Huddersfield will get marginal penalty decisions. They'll be lucky if they get one. And you know, and people say big clubs get all the the, the decisions. Well, uh, not really. Mm. A question from Simon Walker who's been in touch, David, which is possibly close to your heart again. Uh, Everton, they seem to be a lot like Sunderland last season. Discuss. Don't know that bad. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but he's right though. You know, the, the, defensively, they, they look all over the place. And, you, and you're looking at that side and you're wanting people like uh, Jagielka, Williams, Leighton Baines, experienced players that have played a lot of games in the Premier League um, to, to, to step forward and, and sort of and pull everyone around them, be a bit more commanding. And I'm struggling to think of a player who's had a bigger drop-off than Ashley Williams this season. Mm. From you know, f- from Swansea's time at Swansea, with Wheels in 2016 Euros, he looked that commanding figure. You know, he could play as well. You know, he he, he was involved in the style that uh, that Swansea played, the passing style, and. But he doesn't seem to have that more, and they're literally down to a lot of confidence. Yeah, Coleman though set up with Wales to protect him, didn't he? Mm-hmm. You know, it's um, with the, the, the five across that back, so you know it's, um, that helped him. I thought he was showing signs of of age catching up with them towards the last half of the season at Swansea, and I thought while he had the presence and the experience to go to Everton. I wondered whether, especially with the, the lack of pace they had at central defence, whether it was a good idea to bring him in. Um, still, players of his experience should be able to marshal defences better than he's doing at the moment. Mm-hmm. Uh, final question, um, and it actually refers to the topic we began the show on, really. Um, Brian Hunter, are older managers such as Pardew, who we're assuming is going to go into West Brom, Pulis and Allardyce, blocking the pathway for their younger counterparts. I wouldn't say they're blocking the pathway. I'd say the lack of creative thinking in Premier League boardrooms and the uh, the, the easy option, that what's considered the safe option, is blocking the pathway. I mean, they're, they're obviously going to take any job they can get. Um, they're not going to say... And, and football, football managers in general don't want to retire. They want to die on the job. <laughs> it's um, So they're, they're going to take them. But, yeah, it's um, there is a... A real staleness of thought in a lot of Premier League boardrooms and a lot of fear, real fear, that if you go down, then the, the, the amount of money you'll lose and the, the potential for staying down, it, it, it terrifies them so they won't take a chance, which is, which, you know, it's, uh, which is daft because th- there are lots of good young managers out there who they could, they could get in and who would have a, a, a great opportunity to, to develop the clubs and, and, and change things around. But... Um, but yeah, there's there's a lot of narrow minds in football. I think it wouldn't make any difference to me if uh, if if managers as they got older were, were still used simply because in the, in the same style that uh, the ones you've mentioned are. If they move with the times, mm-hmm. uh, quite often you've get uh, you know you mentioned sort of Sam, um, Tony Pulis, uh, even um, oh, so we, um, yeah like Pardew. They're, they're not sort of seen as sort of progressive managers or play, playing a progressive type of football. So then it's kind of of a certain ilk. Uh, and I think that 
that's my only problem with it. That it's it, you, you're not getting these managers. It's not like somebody in a in a sort of a pep mould who's been coming in and uh, and changing the style of football and making them play better football. It's simply kind of a safety first uh, survival type of football, mm -hmm. and that's the only thing I, I have against it. But all, the, as they get older, managers have the luxury of uh, that players don't that they don't they're not. It's not about their legs going. So they should, as they get older, they should be becoming better managers. Yeah, time's catching up with us, as it, as it is on some of those managers, to be honest. But uh, final question. Eric Cantona was in wind-up mode yet again this mm. week, um, saying that um, he would have preferred Pep to be Man United manager than Mourinho. Of all the current managers in the Premier League, who would you like to be manager of your football club? Uh... I think everyone would say Guardiola because of where he's done. Um, I, I, I probably the, the, the football club I support to Liverpool. So I think Liverpool have got the best manager they can possibly get. That doesn't mean I'm a, um, I'm a, a Klopp fanboy, but I don't believe they could get a better manager than him at this stage. Um, you know, so to, obviously we have a sentimental thing with Rafa, but um, I think Klopp's the best manager. David, you mentioned there Rafa Benitez. I've always said it that the day he became Newcastle manager was sort of like a dagger in my heart because he'd have been he'd have been perfect for for Sunderland and mm. and he's proven that at Newcastle now and it, clubs like Sunderland, Newcastle, Liverpool you want somebody who galvanises not just the, the players but the the mm. fans as well and uh, you can see Rafa's doing that at Newcastle and he understands the cultural. Significance and the the place a football club has in its community. Yeah, and, he, and he's having that effect now. Well, I'm an old softy. Give me Arsene Wenger, Mark One, <laughs> a man of foresight, drive, and intelligence. Thanks for joining us here on the Football Writers Podcast. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app. 
you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a four-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program.